mean, they may look at us as bomb throwers and radical fundamentalists, and they may look at us as wild fringe fanatics, but start to explain to them that it is the Christians in this country who brought the hospitals, who brought the schools, who brought the universities, who had 1,100 institutions to reform everything from poor houses to ending dueling to the social reforms of the 19th century. It was Christians who cleaned up the inner cities. It was Christians who brought an end to the slave trade. It is Christianity that has brought that influence into society. Why? Because of the moral imperative. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, we bring you an address given by the late Charles Coulson, former special counsel to President Richard Nixon at the Acton Institute's third anniversary dinner on the topic of the decline of American values. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thank you very much, uh, Dick, for those kind words. It's true that uh, Patty and I, my wife Patty, who's with me tonight, and uh, Tom and Gloria Pratt, who are from West Michigan and now run our ministry in Washington, are just back from London, where we were at Buckingham Palace for one of those uh, thrilling occasions for the Templeton Prize. But what Dick didn't tell you is that the day before we were at Buckingham Palace, which was a Wednesday afternoon, we went to the Pentonville prison. And so I went in London from prison to Buckingham Palace within 24 hours, which is a whole lot better than the way I did it 20 years ago when I went from the White House to prison. I want to tell you why I'm here tonight. There are so many of my friends here in this crowd. It's like old home week. I have to tell you why I accepted this invitation. I receive hundreds every month, and I can't do them, although Bill Buckley did drop me a note about acting, and I did read some of the literature. I really wanted to come and see what kind of a crazy Roman Catholic priest would set up an operation in the bastion of five-point Calvinism, the true faith right here in Grand Rapids. Now, the reason was I read his literature and and decided that uh, this is the kind of mission that all of us, moral conservatives uh, from the Judeo-Christian tradition, need to stand behind because this kind of work to bring the idea of the free market into our seminaries, particularly into our seminaries, I've often thought that the last bastion of Marxist socialism left in the world is on the academies of campuses of America and particularly in our seminaries. So I say Godspeed to the work of Acton Institute to bring truth into those places of learning and to spread this uh, magnificent message. And I'm, I'm thrilled to see all of you coming out here tonight to support it. Now, knowing that I was going to be speaking to Christians and, and uh, to many of my friends and the many in the church, I uh, went back and went through the great writings of the church, back to Augustine and Aquinas and to Calvin and Kuiper, of course, who would be so well known here looking for just that one word that I might bring to you tonight, the church. I found it in none of those great writings. Not the message for the hour. 
I found it instead in a true story of a young man, 33 years old, five years ago, who lived in Los Angeles in a suburb just outside of Los Angeles International Airport. His name was Larry Walters. He was a truck driver. And Larry Walters, every single Saturday afternoon, did exactly the same thing. He would uh, sit in his backyard in a lawn chair in a chain link fence, and all the houses looked exactly alike, rows of them, and all of his neighbors on Saturday afternoon would go out and they'd sit in their backyards, in their lawn chairs, in their chain, bounded in by their chain link fences, and uh, sit there in the Los Angeles smog, and that was their Saturday afternoons. The paper said, the newspaper said, that his practice was to take a six pack, which I assume was Pepsi Cola, and sit in the backyard and sun himself. Well, he was doing that week after week, month after month, and Finally, Larry Walters got a bright idea. Probably after two six-packs of Pepsi-Cola, he decided that what he would do would put some, get, go get some weather balloons, and he would tie them to his lawn chair, and he would get a BB gun so that he would be able to go up just about 100 feet, and if he started to go too high, take the BB gun and shoot out the balloons. And he would float over his neighbor's backyards and wave at them as they were sitting in their lawn chairs. He'd just hover over them about 100 feet. Well, Larry Wallace is a truck driver. He was not a physicist or an engineer. He went out and he bought 45 weather balloons. It's a true story. Brought them back, tied them to his lawn chair, got his neighbors over to hold the lawn chair down. He went and got the BB gun, got an extra six-pack of Pepsi-Cola, came out to his lawn chair, got the BB gun in his lap, said to his friends, let go, and he didn't go to 100 feet. He went to 11,000 feet. <laughs> He floated directly into the landing pattern at LAX. He was first spotted by a DC-10 Continental Airlines pilot who reported to the ground that he had just passed a lawn chair and was told to land immediately and report to the tower. For four hours, traffic was detoured, one runway was closed. Maybe some of you remember reading the accounts of this or you may have even seen it on television as I did at the time, he was up there for four hours, 11,000 feet. He never could shoot a balloon down. He was hanging on for dear life. <laughs> Helicopters went up, rescue aircraft, searchlights. It was dusk. He finally came down. The balloons began to lose their helium. And he came down and made a gentle landing. And a camera crew happened to be at the spot, and they went rushing towards him, and the sirens were going, and the lights were on, and a cameraman shoved a microphone in his face. His eyes were big as saucers. <laughs> and he had three questions. The first question was, were you scared? <laughs> he looked and said, yup. Yeah. Second question is, are you going to do this again? He said, no. Third question was, why did you do it in the first place? And Larry Walters looked right into the camera with those big eyes and he said, well, you can't just sit there. If there's a word for the church today with the world collapsing around us, you just can't sit there. The single great issue of our time was never put more succinctly than it was by Lord Acton, for whom this institute is named. Lord Acton said these words, liberty is the highest political end of man, but no country can be free without religion. Now listen to his reasoning. It, religion, 
creates and strengthens the notion of duty, old-fashioned words. I'm an ex-Marine, semper fidelis, always faithful, duty. If men are not kept straight by duty, they must be by fear. The more they are kept by fear, the less they are free. The greater the strength of duty, the greater the liberty. What he was saying was so fundamental, radical, really, in today's culture. The, question, the, point, the point he was making was that freedom depends upon liberty, which depends upon duty, which is only provided in one of two ways, either by a religious impulse or by the bayonet of the state. And so every society makes that choice. Do we preserve liberty and freedom by that religious impulse, that gratitude to God for what he has done in our lives that causes us to do good and to be virtuous and to be compassionate and to care about other people and to have a sense of civic duty and responsibility? Or do we do it at the point of a bayonet? Aquinas said that a moral consensus is essential for law. And Chairman Miles said the opposite proposition, and that is that politics begins at the muzzle of a gun. See, that's the choice. And that's the most fundamental choice facing Americans today. The choice today is not the question of who will govern us. Some of us would have some strong feelings about that, but that's not the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is the question the Jews of the old asked, and that is how then shall we live? And look around us today, my friends, and see the choice that is being made by American cultural elites as to the question, how shall we live? America, ironically, at a time when it has won the war of ideas, when democratic capitalism, liberal democratic capitalism, is the envy of the world, when people from Liberia to Singapore to around the world are finally saying America is no longer an oppressor, it's no longer imperialist, we want that democratic experiment that is succeeding in America. At the heart of that democratic experiment are moral truths and moral values, and ironically, through the 20th century, we finally won that battle for the ideas of man in the 20th century, and we're jettisoning the one thing that makes it what it is. It's moral underpinnings. America is rapidly secularized. I was talking to the rabbi, I said, how far, we, how far back do you think we are in the, in, in the culture war? Put it in a football uh, analogy. How, what, what, what yard line are we on? Are we on the 20-yard line? And, Rabbi looked at me and said, no, I think we're slipping behind the 20-yard line. Maybe a year ago when I was out here, we might have, I might have said we were on the 20-yard line. I think maybe now we're on the 10-yard line. I mean, just look at the case of Lee versus Wiseman last year in the Supreme Court. I happen to do my doctoral studies in constitutional law. The worst single decision ever entered into by the Supreme Court of the United States. Held that a rabbi who came into a prayer in a, to give a prayer in a junior high school commencement in the state of Rhode Island, Deborah Wiseman complained. The rabbi gave an absolutely politically correct to whom it may concern civic prayer. But Deborah Wiseman complained and said that she should not be made to sit and listen respectfully to something she disagreed with. And the Supreme Court of the United States agreed five to four with Justices Kennedy, Souter, and O'Connor, three Reagan Bush appointees in the majority, holding that it was her constitutional right not to be made and to sit to listen respectfully to something she disagreed with. Friends, there would have been just 10 years ago a mark of civility to listen to something you disagreed with. Now we're saying it's a constitutional right 
not to be made to listen to something you disagree with. Vienna, Virginia, not too far from Washington, D.C., this Christmas, the, the city council ruled you couldn't sing Christmas carols on public property. And so I saw a picture on the front page of the Washington Post I hoped I would never see in my life in America. It looked like Eastern Europe in 1989. It was barricades, people behind the barricades being held back by armed police as they were kneeling and praying and singing Christmas carols 20 miles from the capital of the United States. Zion, Illinois, not too far from here, they're now painting out the cross on the tower of Zion, Illinois, because an atheist took the case for 10 years through the Supreme Court. It's not just in law, it's in education as well. You can hand out condoms in school, but you can't pray. You realize what kind of a message that's giving to young people as to what we as a society sanction? The media. Most of the movies that you see today you don't want to go to, but once in a while I do go to one, like A Few Good Men as an ex-Marine, I couldn't pass that one by. Who turns out to be the villain? Bible-quoting young Marine lieutenant who says he's born again. Go see the remake of Cape Fear, which is a horror movie. Who turns out to be the villain? This time it's not in the original version it wasn't this way, but now they've added this fellow who has crosses all over tattooed him. He's the violent attacker. And he says, you're about to be born again as he's about to assault this woman. You look at movies today and you will see that repeatedly the white Western male is, whether it's Robin Hood or whether it's any one of our movies, been revised to be the enemy. And Christianity is reviled freely in popular culture. I can't help but think what Andrew Fletcher wrote when he said, I don't care who writes a nation's laws, just let me write their songs. You see, popular culture has been completely captured by people who are utterly hostile to religious views. It's become so dramatically, it's happening, it's changing so dramatically fast. 1976, when I came out of prison and I wrote a little book entitled Born Again, and I went on the Today Show, and Barbara Walters, who was a friend of mine, held that book up on the screen, and she said, this is Chuck Colson's book, Born Again, you want to read it. 40,000 copies were sold out that night. Held it up on the screen. Two days later, an obscure candidate for president was walking, he was campaigning through the snows in New Hampshire, and somebody walked up to the governor of Georgia and said, are you born again? He said, yes. The next day, it was across the New York Times, Newsweek, Year of the Evangelical. Everybody and everything was born again in 1976, even antique cars and baseball teams and football teams. I mean, it was the most fashionable term in 1976. 1992, George Gallup asked, what group in America do you fear the most? Number one on the list, fundamentalists. The one person people wanted least to have as their next door neighbor in 1992 was a fundamentalist. They'd rather have a lawyer, a politician, or a car salesman. <laughs> fundamentalist, only one out of 10 Americans, one to one as a neighbor. We have gone, those of us who are evangelical Christians, have gone from being the most fashionable group in America to being the most feared group in America in just 16 years. So bad that I picked up a, an editorial in the Houston Post recently, and the editorial consisted merely of four newspaper headlines. The four newspaper headlines were these. Religious fundamentalists bomb World Trade Center. Religious fundamentalists kill four in Waco. Religious fundamentalist vying for control of Republican Party. Religious fundamentalist shoots abortionist. End of editorial. You see, to the precise contrary, precisely contrary to Acton's proposition, we as a society have come 
all the way full cycle to the exact opposite proposition. So much so that Tom Wolfe was being interviewed on PBS by Bill Moyers. <coughs> Extraordinary exchange. Bill Moyers said, taking away religion's power, this is a graduate of the Southern Baptist Seminary, by the way, taking away religion's power to restrain others has been a fairly positive gain in the last hundred years for liberty. Don't you agree? And Tom Wolfe said, I consider it the fifth freedom. Gone to freedom from religion. Now, our culture is distinctly post-Christian, and we are retreating rapidly. Now, how has this happened? Well, I don't want to go into an extended philosophical discussion this evening, but relativism, the idea that there is no truth, has become popular in our culture. It was in intellectual circles in the Enlightenment, but it finally, for a variety of reasons, suddenly invaded popular consciousness in this century. And in the 60s, the kids believed God was dead. Therefore, you live for the moment, existentialism, we overcome the nothingness of life by our own heroic individual efforts. We all thought it was a rebellion against Vietnam and authority, and it was part of a campus dissent. It was something much more fundamental. We thought the hippies all went away in 1960. They didn't. They simply shaved off their hair, threw away their beads, got rid of their tie-dye shirts, and put on three-piece pinstripe suits and went to New York and became yuppies. Radical individualism has seized us as our ethos, and that loses our sense of community. It goes to the whole question of the object of life. Is the object of life pleasure? As so many of our intellectuals will say today, Professor Yorty at Harvard for one, is that really the object of life? Or is it the pursuit of truth? Is it the pursuit of virtue? Is there something more to life than simply pleasure? When we venerate tolerance over truth, we take away the foundation block of any civilized society. The rabbi was telling at dinner that in Hebrew there is no word for tolerance. <laughs> and so right or wrong. But even in a pluralistic environment where tolerance can be a measure of Christian charity, we've misinterpreted it to be license. So that no one can challenge anyone else's view about any kind of lifestyle. And the result is moral anarchy. Will Durant and Ariel Duran, who studied the history of Western civilization, said there's been no case in the history of Western civilization where a society has been able to survive without a strong moral code, nor has there been a case where that moral code has not been informed by religious truth. You see, the society inevitably collapses. If there's no difference between virtue and vice, there's no basis for us to have a social contract, no basis for us to live together. Samuel Johnson once said when he was advised by his butler that a friend was coming to dinner who believed that all morality was a sham, Samuel Johnson roared and he said, well, if he really believes there's no distinction between virtue and vice, let us count the spoons before he leaves. <laughs> Trouble is in America, friends, the spoons are all gone. We've lost them. And the worst part of it is that people don't know it. I gave a talk at Harvard Business School two years ago on the fact that Harvard couldn't teach ethics, and the thing that shattered me the most was 
I mean, these are 350 of the best and brightest listening to me as I was telling them why they can't learn ethics, because they're in an institution which is grounded in philosophical relativism, and ethics depends on absolutes, and they didn't believe in absolutes at Harvard, and so they were wasting their $26,000 a year at Harvard Business School trying to learn ethics. Not a single one challenged me afterwards. Only challenge was some fella, some fella stood up in the back and he said, Mr. Golson, if you were here at Harvard and you wanted to learn ethics, what would you do? I said, I'd get in the subway and go over to, on the MBTA to Boston College where Dean Joseph Spinella still teaches moral philosophy. Now, you tell that to somebody at Harvard to go to Boston College, you have a riot in your hands. The fella said, how do you spell Spinella? <laughs> We've been Donahueized. Millions of people sit with their tubes on every day. And I saw a fella come on one day on Donahue. Patty, bless her heart, occasionally will turn that on to tell me what's going on in the world as much as you can stand to, to watch it. And uh, will call me out of my study if I'm writing. One day, there was a young fellow on there. She called me down to see. Young fellow was standing on there and he, there was some, I mean, they were having intermarriage between hermaphrodites or something, you know, one of the typical Donahue shows. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, and this little man, the little fellow stands up and he's got glasses on and he's sort of meek and he stands up and he says, Jesus is the answer. And everybody goes, oh. I mean, and then there's this awkward moment, this terrible silence. Nobody knew what to say. Well, the problem was they didn't know there was a question. So Jesus being the answer doesn't mean anything. We have become lobotomized. I don't think we understand. We simply watch Geraldo and, and uh, Phil Donahue and Oprah and Sally Jesse Raphael and we think this is what passes for moral discourse and nobody knows that there's a question that has to be asked and that question is what is the purpose and object of life? We've substituted Aristotle's view of the good life, virtue, for the life of pleasure and we've been simply lulled into indifference and we don't have much time left. Where does it leave us? It leaves us exactly where Acton warned that we would be. Alastair McIntyre, I think, uh, paraphrasing von Clausewitz, said, politics has become civil war carried on by other means. It can't have any civil moral discourse. You can't have any moral debate and political debate in American life today because it's just one side shouting louder than the other with sound bites. And so there's never a moral resolution. And so the only thing that can happen is that you have to bring more force to bear in order to solve problems. And so what happens is something Russell Kirk has so eloquently explained. What happens is you begin to destroy those intermediate structures, what he calls, borrowing from Edmund Burke, the little platoons of society. And there's nothing left but the individual and the government, and the government then has all the power. And that's precisely what Acton was talking about. And that is precisely what is happening to us. I can't overemphasize the urgency because it leads to an inevitable tyranny. Not maybe the tyranny of a Ceausescu who holds you at bay with machine guns, but the tyranny of a cultural elite who holds you at bay by not allowing you to hold your own independent opinions or by mocking your faith, the most central point of your life. And that cultural tyranny can be every bit as tyrannical as the bayonets. What do we do? I would leave you tonight with four thoughts. I think it is vital that thinking Jews and Christians and moral conservatives begin to develop a reasoned apologetic 
that we can present to our secular friends. Acton's premise was right. But how many of us are equipped to be able to sit down and just take it through those simple steps that Acton did with our neighbors? I mean, they may look at us as bomb throwers and radical fundamentalists, and they may look at us as wild, fringe fanatics, but start to explain to them that it is the Christians in this country who brought the hospitals, who brought the schools, who brought the universities, who had 1,100 institutions to reform everything from poor houses to ending dueling to the social reforms of the 19th century. It was Christians who cleaned up the inner cities. It was Christians who brought an end to the slave trade. It is Christianity that has brought that influence into society. Why? Because of the moral imperative. I love to call it the moral imperative to do good, to be virtuous. Why? Because we come into the presence of a holy God and we are to be holy as God told the covenant people and as he tells us now. And so we have that moral imperative to, to be good, virtue, and we have that moral impulse to do good, compassion. And throughout history, that has come from the people and the community of faith. I see it in the crime area. When I was in Buckingham Palace, Prince Philip said, and we got into a discussion after the award was made, and he said, what do we do about crime here in England? I mean, how can we keep people from going to prison? You work in the prisons, Mr. Colson, you must know the answer to that. I said, well, Your Royal Highness, what you need to do is put more people in Sunday school. Now, I, I know he thought I was giving him a glib answer, but then I went on to explain. Christy Davies, a professor at Oxford, has just done a study in which he showed that crime was lowest in England when three out of four young Britons were in Sunday school. And as Sunday school attendance has started to decline, crime has gone up. And Professor Wilson did exactly the same thing in America here and discovered that during the latter part of the 19th century, rapid urbanization and industrialization, all the conditions were there for crime. Crime declined. Why? Period of spiritual awakening going on in America. But then we come into the 1920s when there was a booming economy and crime should have declined if it was due to economic factors and crime, oddly enough, increased. That happened to be the time when Freudian notions were taking root among educated people in America. No, Wilson concluded that crime is the direct result of the breakdown of moral values in our society, and that if we want to end crime, what we do is bring about some resurgence of true orthodox faith lived out by people. Not just paying your respects on Sunday morning in church or in the temple, but people who take their faith seriously and live it out day in and day out. Can't do it without God. Society cannot be good without God. Remember that marvelous, marvelous scene in Tolstoy's War and Peace, if you saw it in the film or you read it in the book, where Pierre, the central character who's beleaguered on all sides, and one moment in his distress and all of the horrible things that has happened to him, he cries out and he says, why is it I know what is right and I do what is wrong? See, the reason is no match for the passion. It's the subduing of the will by the religious impulse. That's what Acton understood. That's what classically has been understood at the root of every decent civilization. That's been the root of decency in, in civil life. And we in America in the 1990s are throwing it aside and saying, oh no, everything is equal. There are no moral distinctions. We are confusing tolerance and indifference. We're saying we should be indifferent to any kind of behavior. And you're gutting the very soul of our society when you do that. 
No, that comes from people living their faith. I think one of the most powerful lessons that I've ever learned in my Christian life, when I was in Czechoslovakia two years ago, and I asked to meet one man while I was there. His name is Vaclav Mali. I'm sure you know him. Father Mali was a priest who was defrocked by the communists in the 1980. They took away his license to preach. They put him down in the subways. He had to clean the subways in the Prague, uh, clean the, uh, the toilets in the Prague subway system. But he would also conduct services at night. When in December of 18, uh, 1989, the people began to move in the streets, the Velvet Revolution, there were 800,000 people in the streets. And they were crying out, Mali, Mali, Mali. He was the one person they wanted. Up out of the subways, up out of the toilets came Father Mali and walked down the street and the crowds followed him, 800,000 to the square in Old Prague, the old part of the city. He conducted services. He led them in the Lord's Prayer. He called for any communist who wanted to repent to come forward and be forgiven. And they came out of the crowds by the hundreds and asked to be forgiven. And the next morning the tanks were gone, not a drop of blood was shed, and Czechoslovakia was free. See my friend Tim Kuhl over here. We were in Czechoslovakia, and I asked to see Mali because he was such a hero to me. Found his little house. I mean, here, he, when, he, when he did this, Vaclav Havel, the president of Czechoslovakia, offered him any position in the government. He said, no, no, I just want to preach the gospel. Jesus changes people's hearts. I want to preach the gospel. And he went back to his parish. We met him in a little house, dingy little place, five flats. This man came to the door, maybe 40 years old. Face could have been chiseled out by Michelangelo, framed in black curly hair, beautiful English, wonderful warm spirit, embraced me. We went up into his uh, kitchen, he had all the papers piled up, the telephones ringing, he's world famous. New York Times credited him with being responsible for the, for the freeing of Czechoslovakia. And after this wonderful fellowship, we were together, and I looked at him as I was getting ready to leave, and we had a prayer together, and I said, I said, it's wonderful to be here. I said, you're a real hero to me. And he looked at me and he said, no, I'm not a hero, Chuck. He said, a hero is someone who does something he doesn't have to do. I only did my duty. See, that's Acton's point. Duty to Jesus Christ for what he has done in our lives gives us that impulse for virtue and righteousness and justice. Gives us a definition for justice. Brings to that society that which if it isn't there, must be replaced by fear, and you can't have liberty without people who understand that duty. Second, it's critical, I say this to all of you, regardless of what denomination you are, what church you're in, that the church become a community of character, as my friend Richard Newhouse puts it, in a sea of mendacity. I've written a book called The Body, in which I have a great passion that the church, the body of Christ, the, the people of God will come together and really love one another and let the world see the love of Christ incarnate lived out in our lives and let them see the reality of what they don't have in secular life. I could tell you story after story tonight of the people who have gone out in our angel tree program and taken angel trees to 265, gifts to 265,000 kids last year at Christmas time in their homes where the Mother or daddy's in prison, and we, this gift is from your father, your mother who's in prison, and brought to that child, and then to see the look on that child's face, and then to see those people begin to drift into the church. Why? Because they've seen the love of God lived out among us. Being precedes doing, Christopher Dawson said. We have to be a holy community before we'll make a difference in our society. Third, 
One of the things that shocks me is the way so many Christians, uh, this would not be said of Orthodox Jews, but it would certainly be said of Christians. So many Christians believe that Christianity means Jesus and me. It does not. Much more than that. When Jesus Christ comes into your life and when you are transformed by him and when you follow him, you have to begin to look at the world with a whole new set of eyes and a whole new perspective. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Look at the world from God's perspective. Don't try to shape God's perspective to your preconceived agenda. Look at what God says about the world and every aspect of it and then begin to develop a biblically informed worldview. One of the places I guess you would least have to preach that would be here in Grand Rapids, in the tradition of Calvin and Kuiper and the great exponents of a worldview, but how much our church needs to understand today that is not just, I've been saved, but I've been saved for what? I've been saved to be a holy influence in the world and to see the world through God's eyes and to live accordingly. And fourth, have courage. Take heart. I said that the rabbi and I were talking about where we are in the culture war. We're losing a lot of ground. I know. I get interviewed by most of the national media and I know how they look at you. They look at you sort of askance a bit. You're, and I, had, I was interviewed by the Financial Times when I was in London. And the fellow said to me, well, he said, you're a well-educated, intelligent person, well-read. He said, you're, you're, you're not one of those who believes in the literal truth of the Bible, do you? I said, don't you? <laughs> of course I do. Well, creationist? I said, what do you think? You think we came out of the primordial soup eight billion years ago, a chance accident, some refracting, light refracts in a certain way, and you get a couple of molecules spin off, and, and you, uh, you suddenly get a protein molecule, and out of that uh, mutations over eight billion years, you and I are sitting here in this hotel doing an interview? I said, that's preposterous. <laughs> Now, he was ridiculing, and he was laughing, and he was, he was like looking for every place to get me to break down. I just wouldn't break down. Got all through, he wrote a half-decent article, and I think I might have even made a little dent in him, because he got to the point where he couldn't understand how amino acids could combine in a certain way to create protein. <laughs> I, I have to tell you, I almost flunked physics in college. It's lonely, but don't despair. I mean, fight your battle on your turf wherever God's put you just one little piece at a time. Uh, you may never be able to get up and have great forums and great opportunities and be able to write great articles, but you can make a little difference in your own neighborhood, your own little groups, your clubs. Just begin to explain the truth. Know the truth, and then begin to explain the truth. People will look at you real funny and be glad when they do. Of Lord Acton, it was written by Gertrude Himmelfarb. Gertrude wrote, Lord Acton was too liberally minded for most Catholics and too Catholic for most liberals. Good for Lord Acton. <laughs> Don't be afraid to take your stand, to risk being ostracized, and uh, to be laughed at. Because you can take comfort in one thing that the Jew and the Christian have always been a scandal to the leaders of this world. And they've been a scandal to the leaders of this world because they can't be destroyed. May Day 1990, when those tanks are rolling through, 
Red Square in Moscow and Mikhail Gorbachev, Time Magazine's Man of the Decade, oh my, was standing up on the platform looking down, was surrounded by his apparatchik, and the tanks are going by. This was when it was still the Soviet Union, the mighty superpower. And out of that crowd came bursting out of the crowd eight men, and they ran through the tanks, and they came down below that platform. And one of them, a bearded Orthodox priest, looked up and he said, Mikhail Sergeyevich, Christ has risen, and the crowd shouted, Christ has risen indeed, at which point he took an eight-foot-high crucifix, raised it in the air, and I have the picture on my office wall in Washington, D.C., because that cross is raised, and the angle at which it was taken, the cross of Christ obscures the banner right across Red Square that had the face of Marx and Lenin and uh, Engels. Cross of Christ raised after 70 years of atheism. No, it doesn't matter what yard line we're on. We do what we are called to do, and we take our stand. We know that there's an opportunity to penetrate what Russell Kirk calls the moral imagination of our people. And maybe we don't do it from great platforms, but maybe we do it one person at a time. I'd leave you tonight with a poem, a beautiful poem, written by G.K. Chesterton. It's a long ballad, but I'll just read you two of the verses. To the stanzas. Chesterton had a vision in the night, was awakened in the night. It was about King Alfred of England, who was defeated in a series of battles against the barbarian invaders. Alfred was all alone, and he was visited by a vision. Defeat seemed absolutely certain. His situation was hopeless. But suddenly the vision appeared to him and gave him a Christian view of victory, despair, defeat, hope, in contrast to the determinism and despair of the so-called wise men of his day, the men of the East. And Chesterton captured that in these stanzas. The men of the East may spell the stars and times and triumphs mark, but the men signed of the cross of Christ go gaily in the dark. The men of the East may search the scrolls for sure fates and fame, but the men that drink the blood of God go singing to their shame. Yes, it may be dark. Yes, it is dark. But the men signed of the cross of Christ go gaily into the dark. God bless you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.